This is a podcast of the Church at Indian Lake. To the King. Let's pray together. Father, we, we ask that tonight you do something, something special and unique in the hearts of, of everyone here because everyone here has a vision. Everyone in here has something they want to see happen. They, they have something that they want to see exist in their life. And I pray that we would move beyond just ideas and just beyond uh, concepts, and we would move to action, and you would help us take that first step. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there's something that I could probably safely assume tonight. You, there's a lot of different interests here. There's a lot of different hobbies and, and different personalities, and, and it would be hard to identify something we all would want to do, but there's probably something that none of us would want to do, and it's this. Work on one math problem for three years. That is not an exciting thing, and I could not imagine anyone in here that would want to spend three years of their life working on one math problem. That's precisely what a guy named Steve Hoffman did. Steve Hoffman is a mathematician, a professor at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and there was a math problem that was written in the, in, in the mid-20th century that for over 40 years was unsolved. Nobody could solve this math problem. And for 40 years, that people would try and they would stop, and eventually uh, most people quit attempting it. But Steve Hoffman in, in 2005 finally solved this math problem. And I want to quote what he says. He says, it's a pro- talking about the math problem, he said, it's a problem that has interested me since I was a graduate student. It was one of the biggest open problems in my field, and everybody thought it was too hard and it wouldn't be solved. I had toyed with it for years and then put in three years of very serious work before hitting the key breakthrough. To work on a problem for three years and finally crack it open feels fantastic, Kaufman said. It's the reason mathematicians work on problems for moments like that. Now, you and I are not exactly revved up by the idea of working on a a 40-year-old math problem for three years, but here's the point I want you to take from this. Steve Hoffman had a vision, and and he said, I am going to solve this problem. Even though everybody else has stopped and no one else is attempting it, I want to solve the problem. And that is exactly how it can be in any situation in your life. You know, that there might be somebody in your life that relationally is dysfunctional that everyone has kind of given up on. No one's reaching out to anymore. But God could be calling you to be that person to unlock the key of their heart. That person to speak into their life. You might be the one, you know, you, you might know someone in your life that no one else believes in, but God has identified you as that key person, and he's given you a vision for their life. It could be a problem. It could be a lot of different things. But I want to talk to you about taking the first step. Because what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to be people who are full of vision but have no activity with that vision. And whenever there's a project, the first step is always the hardest step. I mean, if you can just start, you usually can gain the motivation to keep going. When I talk to people about writing sermons and sermon preparation, that's that's my world 
And when I do mentoring and talk to people about that, I always say, I've been preaching now since I was 13. I started preaching then. And, and so I've learned a few things about that. And one of the things I've learned is the hardest part of getting a sermon ready is just starting. Just starting. A lot of times when I work with people who who don't speak as frequently and they have a big opportunity, uh, they're crippled by so many options. I could preach on this or preach on that or preach on that. And I try to tell them, just get a direction and go. Get a direction and if the Holy Spirit stops you, change directions. But the act of getting that first step and just going, it produces a motivation in you. And what I want to convince you of tonight, and through the story of Nehemiah, that every one of you are ready for your first step. Every one of you are ready for your first step. And you might, you know, it's easier to wait, it's easier to delay, it's easier to say I can do it later, but I believe that you're ready for that first step. We just read in verse 11 that a very important prayer that Nehemiah said. He said, Lord, give me, grant me success when I go before the king. And then he just kind of says this after statement. It just, he says this prayer and he's the one uh, writing this book uh, and he in Nehemiah and telling the story and he just says, I was the cupbearer to the king. Kind of like an after statement. It's one of those things that if you've ever been at, at a, a social engagement or, or met somebody, have you ever interacted with someone and they you're talking and you're hanging out with them and they just kind of you say, well, have you ever have you ever been to the store before? Do, do you work here? And they say, oh, I own the store. Just as an after statement. And it just all of a sudden changes the dynamic of the relationship. You're probably thinking of, of, of different circumstances like that where you, you meet somebody, but you don't know the significance of their position and who they are. But that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He, he's telling the story, and then he says, God, he, he, he writes down and tells a story about the prayer. God, give me, give me success before the king. And then he just kind of says this, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now that might not mean much to you and me, but it meant a lot to those who read the story because the cupbearer was a very, very significant person. The cupbearer was almost like a personal security guard to the king. The cupbearer stayed with the king wherever he went, whether he was in his chariot, whether he was in his palace, and he had the very important job of tasting the wine, tasting the drink, tasting the food before the king got it to make sure that he, there wasn't poison, make sure that there wasn't anything keeping him from them. You know, one of the things that I often do when I'm fixing, you know, uh, fixing meals for my kids or buying that is I'll take a sip of their drink or their milkshake or something, and, you know, kids get so angry even though you're buying it, Dad! And I'll say, I'm checking for poison, you know? And I'll say that the other day, Lincoln stopped me and said, Dad, don't check for poison. That tradition is over. So that was his job. And so, as you know, the cupbearer had to be very trusted. There had to be someone with whom the king had complete trust. Complete trust. He, he also would, would almost certainly be a key advisor to the king. You know, I think it's interesting how our, president, our presidents that we've had recently, uh, uh, a paid position now is advisors. They just pick people to be close to them that they can bounce things off of and they can they can uh, get good advice and, and it's usually and it always is people they trust and their opinions mean something and they've been through battles together well that's exactly what Nehemiah was Nehemiah 
was a trusted advisor to the king. He tasted his wine. He made sure he was a personal bodyguard. He was in a very, very important position. Now, the first word you see it on your screen right now is the word environment. And I'm going to talk to you about that because the first step, when you need to take a first step for your vision, you need to understand that God has created the environment of your life so you can take that first step for a vision. You know, God is sovereign and He is powerful and He can place people in key positions. And it was not an accident that He gave Nehemiah this burden, this burden to lead the rebuilding of the walls. And at the same time, Nehemiah was a, a key influential person in the kingdom. He had an environment in which, in which he could initiate the vision God had put in his heart. Now, I want you to understand something, because this is powerful thought. You know, when God places a burden on you, and he gives you a vision, and he wants you to leave something that is not, and, and make it as it is, and, and he puts that on your heart, that he has already gone before and created the environment of your life. That he has already put you in relationship with the right people, and you're in the right time period, you're living in the right era, you, you are at the right country, you're in that right environment to accomplish his vision. You know, most of us, we don't see it that way. We always look at what we don't have. And, and we think, if only, if only I had these advantages. If only I had this opportunity. Sometimes we could look at other people and say, if I had the opportunity they had, then my vision could really come to pass. Can I tell you, that's not the will of God for you to think that way because He has put you exactly where you need to be and has placed an environment around you for you to take that first step. He knew about it before you knew about it. You see, if the vision is God's vision, it's His idea first anyway. It's not your idea. And so if it's His idea and if it's His desire for you to succeed, which it is, and to bring glory to Him, then He has created the environment of your life so that you will succeed and be successful. Joseph had this environment of a prison. And that is not an environment he would choose, but Joseph's environment was a prison, yet that's where he got prepared. Moses' environment was the comfort of the palace. And that comfort of the palace that he was in it, uh, made him realize that his people were being punished unjustly. David needed the environment of a shepherd field. And there, as a shepherd, David, he took the, the sling and he killed the lion and he killed the bear, which was a significant, significant uh, uh, kill. Uh, and so he would be able to kill the giant. They all needed that environment. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for days and days just so he would be in the environment to hear from God and to prophesy to the people. John was in exile on the islands of Patmos. And he was in the right environment to receive the revelation that we now read today as a book of Revelation. All of those people were, were in less than ideal circumstances and less than ideal environments, yet God chose those environments to help them take the first step to their vision. So here's where I think we, we look at it incorrectly. We say, God is going to use me despite my environment. God's going to use me despite my disadvantages. God's going to use me despite my limitations. God's going to use me despite all of the weaknesses in my life. And we don't realize that it's 
the, the, precisely the environment He chose us that allows Him to use us. He doesn't use us despite our environment. He uses our environment to bring out our atmosphere, or the conditions of our life, to bring about His qualities and allow His vision to come to pass. Now, so, something that, that we need to understand is that our relationships today are the answer to our prayers tomorrow. That's not a scripture, but that's a spiritual principle I've seen in my life over and over and over again. Our relationships today will be the answers to our prayers tomorrow. Meaning this is that God is putting you in relationship with people in this church. He's putting you in relationships with people in your business. He's putting you in relationships with people in, in your education field or wherever you're at. And someday He's going to use those people to help your vision come to pass. I believe that with all my heart. I know that. I've seen it come to pass in my life, and I see it happen over and over and over again. It's not an accident that I'm your pastor for right now. I might not be your pastor forever, but for right now, it's not an accident. There's things that, that God's going to use my leadership to speak things into your life for this time of your life. And you know what? There's things I'm learning from you. There's things that there's a reason why God's called you around me and around Pastor David and around our team because we're going to glean from you. And, and it's about what he's doing right now. He's creating that because the vision inside of all of us, he's ready for us to take that first step. Theodore Roosevelt was, is just quite a character. Uh, the, the essence of rugged individualism and the, the one, he, he has so many great sayings and things, but this quote really sticks out to me. He said this, No man is worth his salt who is not ready at all times to risk his body, to risk his well-being, to risk his life in a great cause. Read that. It's on the screen. Read that again. No man is worth his salt who is not ready at all times to risk his body, to risk his well-being, to risk his life in a great cause. Next thing I want to talk to you about is risk. I'm talking about risk because, because when you begin to take a first step, one of the reasons you don't take the first step from your vision is because you think it's too risky. Can I tell you this? That it always will feel risky to take the first step. That's why the first step is always the most difficult. Now, look at verse 2, Nehemiah 2.2. 2. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Think about that phrase. I was very much afraid afraid. At first read, in our culture, we think, wow, the king must have been a really nice guy, saying, how are you doing, cupbearer? You feeling bad today? Let's talk about it. But that's not exactly how it came about. Then the custom of that day, that if you even showed sorrow or sadness in the presence of the king, you could likely be executed. Because the king was supposed to be so great, and so grand, and and he was everything in that culture, in that society, that being such a wonderful person, to show any sorrow in the king's presence would be a sign of disrespect. And it would be a, a sign of, of, uh, of not recognizing the authority of the throne. So when the king asked him in verse 2, why did your face look so sad when you are not ill? And Nehemiah said, I, am very, I was very much afraid. That was a tactical choice by Nehemiah. Nehemiah wanted to get the attention of the king. So he showed his sorrow. He took a risk because the king could have easily 
banished him from his presence. And Nehemiah could have lost not only his influence and his position and his livelihood, but he could have lost his life too. But he took the risk because there was a vision that he wanted to give. Can I tell you that the vision God has for you always will feel risky. The greater the vision, the greater the risk. And that is why the enemy wants to keep us in fear. That's why the enemy wants to keep us in inactivity. And he wants us just to hold our vision as a concept, as a dream, as something we could talk about, instead of taking the first step and taking the step that we need. Every vision that God gives you has the potential to make you look like a failure. It always has that potential. Because if it was easy and if it didn't have risk, everybody would do it. But God, He has made it just difficult enough so you'll depend on Him and not your own understanding. So you will abide in Him. Just like the song we sung earlier, John 15:5 says, If you abide in Me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can't bear fruit. So sometimes God puts the vision and it seems so unreachable and so hard to get there and so far away and we we don't understand how we're going to do it. And so we never take the first step. Instead, we should say, I'm going to take the first step. I don't know how I'm going to take the third, the fourth, the tenth, the hundredth step. But I do know this, that if I abide in the presence of God and I stay in Him, He's going to make me fruitful. And He's going to make it happen. But there is a risk. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to don't let your fears keep you from taking the first step. Don't don't just live in the land of it could have been or should have been. Instead, say, I will take that step God wants me to have. Obeying God is not risk-free. It costs something. And one of the things we need to understand is that when we obey God, sometimes the cost is higher than we expect. But I want to remind you that we don't live for earthly acclaim. We don't live for earthly success. We live for eternal success and eternal acclaim. And we have to change our definition of what success is. We don't need to judge ourselves by the standard of the world. We need to judge ourselves by what God's going to say about us. One of the things that really bothers me uh, about church culture, and you're, you, may, you may not be aware of this as much because you're not reading church growth and, and trends and things like that, but there is a huge tendency to degrade pastors of small churches. And I, I just want to say that pastors of small churches are some of the hardest working, godly um, people I've ever met. That just because a man has a smaller congregation, and, and now that we have a mid-sized congregation, I have more moral authority to say this now, just because a man has a smaller congregation, that is not necessarily an indication of his prayer life, of his work ethic, of his passion, or his ability to preach the gospel. Some soil is more difficult to grow than other soil. Some soil is harder to plant than other soil. In Jeremiah, God gave him a word, and he said, go preach to your people. And did he get a TV ministry, and did he get a claim? Was he on a magazine? No, Jeremiah got his butt kicked. He got beat up by the people he preached to. He had a tough call. He had a tough assignment. 
And I think someday, someday, some of our pastors who have not been respected, that have been in rural communities, that have been in urban centers, that they haven't been in the the suburbs uh, of Hendersonville, Tennessee, or Franklin, Tennessee, but they've been in difficult places to sow, that God's going to say, hey, you see that guy over there, his name's Jeremiah? Go hang out with him a little bit. He had a tough call too. He had a tough, tough call to do. See, sometimes the call of God takes risks and there is a price to pay. That's the point I'm trying to make. This will probably astound you because we we hear a lot of uh, statistics about church plants, but 80% of church plants fail in the first five years. Think about that. For every ten churches that are planted, eight of them don't survive till their fifth birthday. And it's there's there's a there's a, a a whole spectrum of reasons why that happens, but it's not always it's not always uh, a mistake, and it's not always something wrong. Sometimes godly men and women have gone and they plowed the field and they have sown eternal seed and they've done things that only God knows, and they deserve our respect just as much as mega church pastors, TV pastors, and uh, young punks who take over churches like this. They deserve our respect because they had a tough, hard call. And so there is a risk. And it might be that when God calls you to do something, the price might be might be higher than you think. It might cost you more. But we don't live for today anyway. We live for eternity. We live for treasure that's in heaven where moths can erode. We live, live for, for things that God has held for Himself, not for our own glory. Uh, some, I read a book a few years ago called Younger Evangelicals. It's an excellent book by Robert Weber, who's passed away now, and it, and it profiled uh, younger. At that time, uh, this is written in 2003. It profiled 20s and 30s and how they think differently sometimes than than evangelicals who are in their 40s and 50s. And in the middle of that book, a young student uh, named David Hopkins shared a quote that really affected my life. Whether or not you agree with it, I just want you to know that this quote really affected my life in a positive way, and I want to share it with you as I talk about the risks that can happen. Hopkins says this, and you can see it on the screen, truly humble yourself, even to the point, if God calls you to be a failure for His glory, you will embrace it with joy. Even to the point that if God gives you a ministry where you will not see its blessing in your lifetime, you will embrace it with joy. Remember this, if you seek man's approval, you will get it. One tiny tombstone, maybe. A short funeral service, maybe. A one-column obituary among a world of 5.8 billion people, maybe. If you seek God's approval, you will receive the honor of serving Him for all eternity and being among those written in the book of life. What a great great perspective. That's why Galatians 1.10 says, am I trying to win the approval of man or the approval of God? If I'm trying to win the approval of man, then I am not a servant of God. So when God wants you to take the first step, just know that He's given you the right environment and there is a risk. That risk won't stop you because there's going to be something else that you need. I remember when I was in uh, high school, I had this wonderful youth sponsor that was probably in his... In his uh, early 30s, named Manuel. Manuel is now married, and uh, I see that he's doing well thanks to the magic of Facebook. But uh, we were all, you know, as, as little high school kids talking with him one day, and um, 
you know, we said, hey, Manuel, why, why don't you ask this girl out? Because it was obvious he was, he, he had a crush on one of our other youth sponsors. Like, why don't you ask her out? And, and he, he, do you like her? He said, yeah, I like her, I like her, and all this. And I said, why don't you ask her out? And he said, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting on the Lord. And I'll never forget one of the 16-year-old kids said in his, in his infinite wisdom, he said, Manuel, is the Lord going to make the first move? I've always remembered that story because one of the things you need to make the first step is initiative. And as you're following along the points, you see that initiative is important. Every great thing that God's done for me uh, has happened with initiative, with me taking a step. And we talk about waiting on the Lord, but the very nature of waiting means that waiting is temporary. You don't wait forever. The very definition of waiting is there's a time period that elapses before the reality comes. So waiting is important. And it is important to wait on the Lord. And I have a great sermon on waiting on the Lord that you'll hear again. But you only wait for a certain amount of time. And waiting is temporary until you have to take initiative and say it's time for something to happen. It's so much easier to talk about the vision than it is to implement it. It's so much easier to say someday, if only, when, I'll eventually do it. Instead of saying, I'm going to take the first step. I don't know what the second or the third is, but I'm going to take the first one and have initiative. Now, taking initiative is an art because you don't want to be overbearing. Some people have taken initiative and they're like overbearing on it and you're, there's, a, there's a time to approach the king. There's a way to approach the king. It might take risk, but you have to do it with grace and you have to do it with um, uh, poise and and you have to do it at the appropriate time. But initiative is very important. And let's look at verse 5. He went on to respond to that. He said, I answered the king, if it pleases a king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. That is where courage came. You have that in your notes. Courage. There was a risk. And but now there needed to be the courage. And look what happened. And this is the second point, or the next point is favor. Verse six. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, "How long will your journey take? And when will you get back?" Now, here is what the wrong answer would have been, and this is what a lot of Christians would have said there at verse six when he said, "How long will your journey take? And when will you be back?" A lot of Christians would have said this. Uh, I don't know. I've just been praying. I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just waiting on Him. I'm just praying. I'm just waiting for God to open the doors. I'm just, I'm just praying and just waiting, waiting, waiting. Nehemiah had been in a four-month period of prayer, but during that time, he hadn't just prayed only. He had prayed and planned. He had prayed and dreamed and planned and made dreams. So going on in verse 6, he says, says um, it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He got a schedule. I like that. I like a guy with a schedule. Verse 7, I also said it to him, if it pleases a king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God, my God, was upon me, 
the king granted my request. He had a plan and he was ready, but he didn't take pride in his plan. God got the, got the blessing and he got the favor. And that's why he knew what resources he was going to have. Can I tell you this, that when you have a vision from God, you will need resources. You're going to need a team. You're going to need money. You're going to need um, uh, favor and opportunity and connections because God moves through those things. And so there is a plan for you. There is a plan. So it is not wrong for you to plan. It's not wrong for you to get out a paper and a pen and see how much money will this cost? How long will it take? What, who do I need to get on my team? Who do I need to get to help me? Those are not wrong things to do while you pray. Pray and plan because God's going to have to bring about the resources. And I love his attitude. Because the gracious hands of God was upon me, the king granted my request. I want to close with this. I just want to ask you a question. What is your 40-year-old math problem? What is it? What is that riddle? Is it a person? Is it a dream? Is it something that God put in your heart when you were a child and you've tried to ignore it, but it just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back? You see, three years of hard work for that professor from Missouri when everyone else quit, but he just stayed at it. And I just want to tell you this, that God has given you what you need. He's given you the environment. He's given you the favor. He's given you the resources. Turn your vision into action. To make it something special. More than just a concept, but a reality. And man, I want you to stand with me. And I want to pray for you right now. I've asked the Lord tonight if the Lord would, would help some first steps to happen. I've asked the Lord to, to, to make some first steps happen tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. He is the giver of dreams. He is the giver of dreams. And when a dream comes from the Lord, when it comes from Him, He will He will cause that dream to come to pass when it is from Him. Discern in your heart what dreams are from Him and what dreams are not. You know, it's okay. In your pride, don't hold on to things that you, you have spoken about and spoken over and now the, the cloud has lifted and the fire is departed, the glory is departed. You know, some of us, I just feel like the Lord wants to remind some of us in here that we don't have to prove anything to anybody except the Lord. And so if, in your, if you had said, I'm going to do this, or I'm called to this, and God has changed, it is foolish and prideful to hold on to something that the Holy Spirit's not breathing on anymore. And that's human pride. That's not, that's not the work of the Lord. So, so I, I want, first of some of you to be free tonight. The Lord's saying, I want you to be free. The Lord said, I have released that dream in you. I have released that burden. I have released that vision. And it's okay to let it go. It's okay, okay to let it go. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It's what God says. And if God says it's over, and He says it's done, it's done. And if you try it, you're going to produce an Ishmael in your life. You're going to produce an Ishmael, and, and, and that's not born of the Spirit. It's what's born of what the Spirit says. Now, I also want to pray for some of you tonight that this is no more delay. The Lord's saying there's going to be a first step for you. It might be as simple as a phone call. It might be as simple as an email. It might be as simple as starting to pray for that again. But the Lord says no more delay. No more delay because I chose this in you. It's my decision. It's my decision and I want you to obey that. 
We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing, Lord. We love you, Jesus. You're a great God. You're a great God. I I want to ask that uh, that our prayer our prayer team to come to the front tonight, and I'm going to be here at the front, and I'm going to here in the next uh, 40 to 60 seconds, I'm going to dismiss this service. Uh, but if you want to come and you want to pray at the steps by yourself, I want you to feel free to do that. If you want to come pray with me, and if you want to pray with one of our prayer partners about this message, uh, about initiating a first step in your life, or if you just simply have a need. You know, sometimes in, in as we go about the week, we just need someone to agree with us for a breakthrough, for a healing. Maybe you're dealing with something with your job, and these prayer partners are available for you. Amen. I'm so excited about this Sunday. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I want you to do, we freed up more space so you can bring more people. You know, so invite somebody. Uh, Penny and a team of ladies that came and helped her, Cheryl and Barbara and Kathy, uh, Cheryl Lenz and Barbara Birch and Kathy Hertzler. Uh, I think you guys sent out 800 letters are going to. are going to send out 800 letters to our entire mailing list. And I just said, if you used to go to this church, if you visited once, come on back. We're having a 9.30 and 11.15 service. So pray with me that those who are not in church that used to be associated with our church would come back. So if you see some familiar, some old faces, don't do this. Don't say, where have you been? Instead say, welcome home. Just welcome them back. And, and let's just believe God to bring a harvest of people. And I want you to think about who you can invite to church today. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you, Lord, that... Uh, as we've declared over and over tonight, you put something in the in the, the people's heart. Lord, you put something in there and it will come to pass, Lord. Those things you have put in will come to pass. Those things that you have predetermined will happen. They will come to pass, Lord. And so, Lord, we take that first step. Give us the courage, Lord. Not, Lord, to to look to what we don't have, but Lord, to accept what we do have, Lord. And to know that you're going to give us favor and you're going to give us resources. But Lord, if you gave favor from a wicked king to Nehemiah, surely as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, you're going to give favor and blessing to your very sons and your very daughters, Lord. So we believe that. This has been a Church at Indian Lake podcast. Be sure to check out IndianLakeChurch.com for all updated news and information.